0: Well, I had the blessing of fellowshipping with some other pastors this week and I mentioned to Pastor Mark here in the village that I was going to be in Romans chapter 9 talking about the doctrine of election and he said, boy, you don't shy away from anything there. Not the first time we've talked about election here in the church. Back in 2014, I did two messages on Calvinism and Arminianism and those messages can be found on the website, the sermon audio or our own FirthBible.org website. And if you are interested in this subject, then I encourage you to go back and listen to those messages as well because I was doing more of an overview of Calvinism and Arminianism in those messages. But in this sermon, we're just covering three or four verses within a text. And we're going to do our best just to pull out the truth from these verses and lay it out before us that we might be able to see the process, the order, and the meaning of the text. As William Tyndale said, that is the best way of establishing God's people in the truth, is to lay out the text so they can see the process, the order, and the meaning of the text. And so we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the scriptures, and we cover the topics that God wants to cover, because it's the topics that he put into his Holy Bible. So I chose the book of Romans, But God chose all of the verses that are in the book of Romans, and I pray that I will be handling them accurately as an approved worker who does not need to be ashamed. So we are this morning in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, and we're dealing with some deep subjects. This is the same cartoon I used back in 2014 to introduce the subject, and I I appreciate Foxtrot. It was one of my more favorite comics back when I was reading the newspaper. And so here, you got the boys out playing in the backyard, and he tells his friend, go deep. And his friend, of course, takes the ambiguity in that statement and, and says, how can free will coexist with divine preordination? And that's the question. <laughs> that's the deep question. How can human free will coexist with divine preordination? And so the uh, boy thinks about that for a minute, and he says, that's, that's too deep. I didn't want you to go that deep. So then he comes up with a little less deep question. To tease the mind with as well. So, we're dealing with some very deep and difficult subjects here in Romans chapter 9, and Paul knows that. Paul has been preaching for years, he's been teaching the message of unconditional election throughout all the churches, and he's come across the objections that people have to this doctrine everywhere that he's gone. And the basic idea here in the text, as we see on the outline, is that people think, unconditional election just doesn't sound fair it doesn't sound right that god would choose certain people for salvation not based upon anything in themselves but just based upon god's own good pleasure the mystery of his will that he hasn't revealed to us why am i saved and my neighbor isn't why are we saved and the people out in the world are not saved well it's because of god's choice and we say well On what basis has God made his choice? And the doctrine that Paul teaches is that the mystery of God's will is that he doesn't tell us upon what basis he made his choice. He's just made his choice, but he does tell us what it's not on the basis of. That God's choice of you, God's choice of me, is not based upon our goodness. It's not based upon our merit. It's not based upon anything that was in our human will or in our lives That was not the basis for God's choice. But that God chose us for his own mysterious reasons that is difficult to explain to us. And that's a hard place for us to be because people don't like that idea. They they want God to to give an account. They want God to give an answer for for why he's done what he's done in this area because it is an eternally significant and an infinitely important decision that God has made. What if God had not chosen me? What if God had chosen to harden me instead of to show me mercy? Well, that would be very bad for me. That's why we don't like this doctrine. It sounds very unfair. It sounds very hard. And there are some hard things in Scripture. There are some hard words that came from the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on this earth. He would draw thousands of people Crowds from all of the villages would be streaming out into the countryside to come and hear him preach because he was doing things that no one else had ever done before and he talked like no one else had ever talked. But there were certain things that Jesus would say that were hard sayings and the crowds would leave. The crowds would disperse. They'd say, we're not going to listen to this. We're not going to accept that. On one occasion, Jesus said some hard words and the crowds all dispersed and he was just left alone with his disciples and he asked them, Are you going to leave also? And they said, where else can we go? You have the words of truth. And so when we come to the hard things in Scripture, and it causes people to leave and say, I don't like that. That doesn't sound good to me. The heart of the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusts in him says, where else can I go? All I have is the word of truth, the word of God. And there's nowhere else to get truth. This is our anchor. This is our source. And so, with that in mind, let's pray that God will lead us into the truth and give us a humility before the text, before we try to explain it. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, you have said that you will look to the one who is humble in heart, to the one who trembles at your word. May we have that spirit among us today. May we come before your word recognizing that you are the creator and we are creatures. You are the infinite God and we are finite beings. You are the morally perfect righteous one and we are sinners corrupted in our reasoning and in our morality. Lord God, may we come to you with the proper attitude and the proper respect to tremble at your word and to be like the disciples who answered Jesus Christ and said, You have the words of truth. We have nowhere else to go. And so, Lord God, may the truth of your word minister to each one of us. And may you guide my words as I seek to speak the things that are from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18 in Romans chapter 9 this morning. And as we have gone into Romans 9 through 11, we are exploring... Paul's answer to the question, why has Israel not believed in their own Messiah? If Jesus Christ really is the Savior, then why do his own people reject him? And all of these non-Jewish people, these Gentiles, why are they the ones who are streaming into the church? And so Paul's dealing with that question, doing apologetics in Romans 9-11, through defending his gospel to the Gentiles. And as he has begun to explain why things are the way they are, he has brought in the doctrine of election as the first part of his explanation. If you look in the text there in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, you see that Paul was contrasting God's choice of Esau and Jacob. When it came to Isaac's children, Esau and Jacob, that God had chosen one and not chosen the other. And he says there in verse 11 that God's choice of Jacob and his rejection of Esau as the one who would receive the covenants of promise, the grace of God that had been promised to Abraham, that this grace was passed on to one brother and not the other brother. Why? What was God's choice based upon? Look at verse 11. They were not yet born... And had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So Paul has introduced the idea of election there in verse 11, and he said that God's choice came before they were born and had done anything good or bad. Now people will say, yeah, but God knows the future. So the fact that his choice came before could still mean that it's based upon something that they did or something that they would do. But Paul's point in bringing it up, that it was before they had done anything good or bad, is not to have an argument about how God has a different relationship to time than we do. He's pointing it out to show that God's choice was not based upon anything that they would do. That's his whole point in bringing it up and stating it in that way. There'd be no reason for Paul to say it in this way if he was teaching that God's choice of Jacob was based upon what Jacob was going to do in his future life. Paul could have said that, but instead Paul emphasizes the opposite. His point is that it was not based upon their works, but instead it was just God's purpose in election. And so, as Paul has taught this doctrine in the churches, and he's preached it publicly, He has found out that people don't like this doctrine. And so he's going to answer that objection. So the objection there comes in verse 14. Paul introduced election in the previous paragraph, especially verse 11. And so now he says in verse 14, he kind of takes a, a little rabbit trail from his main argument about Israel, and now he's just going to focus on the doctrine of election. And so we read in verse 14, What shall we say then? This is how Paul introduces what would be an objection or a misunderstanding of what Paul has said. He does this throughout the letter. We've already seen it a number of times in Romans 1 through 8. Paul will teach something and then he will guard against a misunderstanding or a misapplication of what he said by introducing a possible objection. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? God, it's not fair that you would pick Jacob and not Esau. It's not fair that you would bless Isaac and not Ishmael with these wonderful promises. That's the idea that people have. And we're going to explore Paul's answer to that in verses 15 through 18. Now, backing up to verse 11 for a moment, it's one of those verses that has bad grammar. You find a number of verses in the Bible that have bad grammar and people are like, well, I thought the Bible was God's word, you know, why would God have bad grammar? Well, it's because when Paul was writing verse 11, he came across a thought that the Spirit of God was moving upon him that was so important that he wanted to emphasize so much that he had to break off the way that he started his sentence and kind of take his sentence in a whole new direction that was not grammatically normal because of the importance of the idea. So verse 11, if you read it in the Greek, and you see it kind of reflected in the English translation as well, it's kind of an awkward sentence because his concern here is not grammar. His concern is that he wants us to recognize that God's election is completely independent of any human merit. That's what he's trying to get across. Now if Paul believed that election was conditioned upon our faith, or anything that we might do, then he has ample opportunity to write that here. Because people are wondering, is it fair that God would choose Jacob and not Esau? Is it fair that Jacob I loved, as he says in verse 13, but Esau I hated? Well, if it was based upon something in them, Paul has very good opportunity here to let people know. Well, it's fair because Jacob was like this, and Esau was like that, but that's not at all the way Paul argues. He doesn't say it's fair because Jacob pursued the promise and had faith and wanted it and Esau didn't. Paul doesn't say that. No, he says that it's all based upon the will of God, not on the will of man. Now, there's two ways that people try to wriggle out of unconditional election in this passage. This is one of the strongest passages on the doctrine of unconditional election in the Bible. And there's two ways that you can try to say, no, Paul's not really talking about unconditional election here. And the first is to say, this chapter, Romans 9, it's not dealing with personal election. It's dealing with national election. That Jacob and Esau, it's not about them as individuals and their individual salvation. It's about whether or not their family the nation that was going to come from them was going to be God's chosen nation or not. And you can see how people would think that. I mean, that is something that is in the passage. It's not foreign to the passage. It's not foreign to the Bible. Jacob does represent Israel. Esau does represent Edom. In fact, the verse that's quoted there in verse 13 is not about Jacob and Esau personally, but it's about the nation that came from them that is called after their name, Esau being Edom and Jacob being Israel. And it's from the last book of the Bible hundreds of years after they lived their personal lives. But this argument falls far short of doing away with unconditional election for several reasons. Number one, throughout scripture, national election is something that God uses to illustrate the principle of personal election. The choice of Israel, irrespective of their own merit, they were the smallest of nations, they were stubborn and hard-hearted, There was nothing in Israel that made God choose them. God chose them for his own purposes, not because of anything good that they had. And so that is an illustration of God's election of individuals to salvation as well. That God works on the national level in order to illustrate the personal spiritual truth that he wants us to understand. This is reflected in our spiritual songs. When you hear songs about crossing over Jordan, well, it's the nation of Israel that crossed over Jordan, right? Right? But we recognize that in that story is an illustration of a truth that has application to our personal lives. So that when we die and go to heaven, we're going into the promised land like Israel as a nation went into the promised land. And how did they go into the promised land? Well, they crossed through the River Jordan. And so when a believer dies, it's like crossing through the River Jordan. And that's not even something that's in the Bible. That's just something that people recognize that the truth of the Old Testament is illustrating the personal truth, the personal salvation. So you can't separate national salvation and personal salvation because God uses the one in order to inform the other. And also, as we look at this passage, we see the terminology that Paul uses throughout Romans 9 is the same terminology that he uses to describe personal salvation in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. He's talking about God's purpose. He's talking about God's calling. He's talking about human works and God's grace and faith. It's the same terminology in Romans 9 that he has been using throughout the book when he's talking about personal salvation. Also, Paul speaks of these people not just as nations in Romans chapter 9, but he speaks about them as individuals. Like in verse 11. Before they were born, before they had done anything either good or bad, not because of him who works but because of him who calls she was told the mother the individual mother the older will serve the younger so it is about individuals and it's about nations you don't separate them that's a false dichotomy that has been created in order to try to get unconditional election out of this passage people might say well maybe god's election of nations is unconditional but his election of individuals well that's conditioned upon faith and that God chooses those whom he foresaw were going to have faith in Jesus Christ. And that is not supported by the text. And in fact, it goes contrary to the intention and the grammar of the passage. The logic of the argument, the syntax of the argument, that is introducing something that is contrary to what Paul is trying to accomplish here. So not only is it not proven, but it actually goes against what the evidence supports. Secondly, another way that people try to get unconditional election out of Romans chapter 9 is they say faith is not a work and therefore it can be the basis of God's election. So we're talking about the basis of God's election and I wanted to remind you of TULIP. TULIP is a way of remembering what has come to be known as the five points of Calvinism. Now, John Calvin didn't write the five points of Calvinism. John Calvin wrote the Institutes, and he wrote his commentaries, and then people studied Calvin, and and they came up with these summaries of what was kind of the essence of his view on these important issues. And so he believed in total depravity, and he believed in unconditional election. That's the one we're focusing on today. He believed in limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. So unconditional election is the doctrine that God chooses who is going to be saved, who is going to receive God's mercy, irrespective of anything that that person has done or ever will do. That salvation is based upon God's choice that is not conditioned upon anything in us. And so one of the ways that people try to get out of this is by saying that faith is not a work, And therefore, it can be the basis of God's election. But I like what Moo said, and it's just going to reiterate what I've been saying. Douglas Moo commentating on this passage, he wrote, I can only reiterate that the introduction into this text of any basis, emphasis his, any basis for God's election outside of God Himself defies both the language and the logic of what Paul has written. If you're just going to read the text and understand what Paul says, then. Faith is also excluded as a basis for God's election. Now in saying that, we're not trying to undermine the importance of faith in salvation. You can't be saved without faith. But you are not elect because you have faith. You have faith because you were elect. You've got to get the order right. That's Paul's idea here. You are not elect because you have faith. You have faith because God elected you, God chose you. That is Paul's idea, and that is what we summarize as unconditional election. Let's go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 5 for a moment. Back up. In Romans chapter 3, Paul almost launched into Romans chapter 9. He has some ideas here in Romans chapter 3 that he starts to write about, and then he realizes that he doesn't want to go that direction yet, It's definitely something he wants to talk about, but he's still got a lot more developing of the gospel to do before he gets to that discussion. So in Romans chapter 3, he starts off talking about the Jews, which is exactly what Romans 9 through 11 are about. And he says, in light of what I said in Romans 2, that all the Jewish people are sinners in need of God's mercy and God's salvation just as much as the lost Gentiles, in light of that truth, then what advantage has the Jew? I thought the Jews were God's chosen people. I thought they were, He's a like nation. And you're saying they're just as lost as the Gentiles. Then what good is it to be God's chosen nation, right? That would be the question. What is the value of circumcision is another way of putting the question there in verse 1. And Paul answers this way much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's, that's the first blessing that Paul can think of, is to have the Bible. That is amazing. Now, what if some were unfaithful? This is the Jewish people. They didn't believe. They didn't trust in God. They were unfaithful to God's covenant. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? That's the question that's being answered in Romans 9 through 11. And Paul says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Let's stop there for a moment. That God may be justified that he might prevail when he's judged. Here's a thought for you. God will not be judged by human standards. God will not be judged by human standards. Humans will be judged by God's standard. Let's get that straight. Let's make sure we're clear on that. God will not be judged by human standards. Humans will be judged by God's standard. Now, people do try to judge God by human standards, They do try to say, God, you're not fair. God, that's not right. Every man is a liar and God is true. And so when those charges are leveled at God, God is justified and he has prevailed when he is judged. That when the evidence is presented, God is shown to be right and people are shown to be evil. Notice verse five. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God... What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in a human way. This is the way people question God. And if if God's working all things to glorify himself, and that includes my sin, well then God can't judge me for my sin because my sin has been all a part of his plan to glorify himself. So pat me on the back, God, for helping you out with all my sin. That's the human twisted reasoning. And that's where Paul's going with the argument next week. But I wanted to to see here that Paul starts to deal with these issues back in Romans 3. But we come to Romans chapter 9 to get the fuller answer. So the charge is, God, that's not fair. God, your ways are not right. The Old Testament Israelites said this to God. It's recorded in the prophets that the people came and they lodged their complaint against God. They said, God, your ways are not right. And what was God's answer? Is it my ways that aren't right? Or is it your ways that aren't right? So Paul is going to demonstrate here in verses 15 to 18 that unconditional election, far from not being right, is exactly right. And those who would quibble with God over the doctrine of unconditional election, it's them that are not right. They've got things twisted. They've got things turned around in their thinking. So let's see how Paul does that in verses 15 and 16. Back in Romans 9, Let's look at verses 15 and 16 as Paul justifies the ways of God to man. And what's his argument look like? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, what does he base that conclusion upon? Scripture says. Scripture says. He could have given a philosophical argument. He could have given a logical argument. He could have appealed to man's reason. But he doesn't. He says, if you want to know the truth about God, listen to God's word. If you want to know what's right, Listen to what God says. And God has spoken. God has said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. What's the meaning of that? Why would God say that? Well, let's go back and look at it in its context. Exodus chapter 33. Great passage. I love Exodus 33. As you're turning back to Exodus chapter 33, I want you to think about how throughout this section, Paul is illustrating the truth of election through three sets of contrasts. You've got Isaac and Ishmael in verses 7 through 9 that we looked at last week. We've got Esau and Jacob in verses 10 through 13. And then we've got Moses and Pharaoh in verses 15 and 17. So you've got the one who is chosen and the one who is not chosen in each one of these contrasts. Now we come back to the passage that Paul wants to contrast with Pharaoh and God's grace and mercy to Moses here in verses 15 to 17 15 and 16 really and the, the verse that Paul quotes is Exodus chapter 33 verse 19 are you there Exodus 33 now what happened in Exodus chapter 32 does your bible tell you does it got a a chapter title there for Exodus chapter 32 the golden calf right so what we've got is the people of Israel transgressing the covenant god made a covenant a legal agreement with his people you shall worship no other gods besides me you shall not make a graven image nothing that is on the earth nothing that is in the heavens nothing that is under the earth or in the sea no idols and a month later Moses is gone for a while Aaron make us a god a metal image out of gold so that we can worship because that's what they knew that's what they did they were idolaters So they broke the covenant, the covenant that they had promised to keep. All that the Lord has said we will do was their solemn oath. And they went back on it so quickly. The terms of the covenant were, you obey me, you are blessed. You disobey me, you are cursed. And so the curse of God is rightly coming upon the people in Exodus chapter 32. And God tells Moses, I'm going to destroy the people. And I'm going to start over with you. And people say, whoa! Hold on there, preacher. God can't destroy a whole nation of people just because they worship in a way he doesn't like. What kind of God are we talking about here? The true God? The living God? The God who created the heavens and the earth? The God who is holy? The God who speaks and it happens? The God who will judge you? The God before whom you will stand and give an account? That's the God we're talking about. And he's revealed himself. And you either believe what he has said or you create your own idol. My God's like this. My God wouldn't do that. Does your God exist? That's the important thing you should be asking yourself. And so we come to Exodus 32 and what we have established is the principle of God's judgment. You break the law, you pay the penalty. That's justice. You break the law, you pay the penalty. And what is the penalty for sin? Death. The penalty for sin is death. But Moses, he intercedes for the people. He prays on behalf of God's glory and God's reputation that God wouldn't destroy the people that he brought out of Egypt, but that instead he would be merciful and forgive them. And God listens to the prayer of Moses and says, Okay, I won't destroy them. But you know what that is? That's mercy that's mercy. They broke the law. They deserved death. They didn't get death. That's mercy. Very important for us to understand mercy from a biblical context. If you don't understand the law, you don't understand sin, you don't understand the penalty of the law, then you don't understand mercy. Most people don't, but the Bible establishes these truths for us in the very beginning Genesis, Exodus, these foundational books that teach the principles that we must know if we're going to understand the Bible, if we're going to know who God is. You can't cut these parts out of your Bible and make up your own definitions for mercy. You've got to go with what's in the Scripture. So we come to Exodus chapter 33, and I want you to look at verse 19. Moses is praying for the people. Let's pick it up in verse 12 to get the context here. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you. In order to find favor in your sight, consider too that this nation is your people. And God said to Moses, My presence will go with you. So Moses was wondering, who are you going to send with me? God says, I'm coming with you. Who's God's presence? The pre incarnate Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. God himself is going to dwell among his people. I will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. I'm not going anywhere without you, God, is what Moses says. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? And that's what the rest of the book is about. They build a tabernacle. God comes and fills the tabernacle so that God is dwelling with his people. And now they're ready to go because God is with them. So that we are distinct. I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. What's the benefit of being a Jew? God's presence. The glory. As Paul said in Romans chapter 9 the first opening verses. And so the Lord answers Moses' prayer in this way. But notice, this is grace. This is mercy. The people do not deserve to have God dwell in their midst. They do not deserve to be this special nation. What has Israel done? What have they deserved to be the chosen nation that Egypt hasn't done, that Babylon hasn't done, that all the nations on the earth haven't done? God gave them something that he didn't give to others. Why? Because God wanted to. He wanted to. That's what God says. Look at it. This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And, here's our verse, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy mercy. Moses, I'm going to answer your prayer, but I want you to know why I'm answering your prayer. I'm answering your prayer because I want to. It's kind of like when you're talking with your kids, and your kids are like, why, why, why? And you're like, because I said so. That's what God is doing here. Saying, Moses, I'm going to answer your prayer. I'm going to do what you want, because I want to. Not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, not because of anything in you It's my pleasure. That's what this is based upon. And you know, when you think about God's knowledge, that God understands all things actual. God understands all things possible. He can imagine infinite variations of this world without even having to think about it because his mind is infinite in its expanse. God knew me before he created the world. So, He's not going to be able to explain to you why this, why that. You just aren't capable of knowing. It's like trying to explain calculus to somebody who hasn't learned algebra yet. Good luck. God has a spiritual calculus that's going on in His mind, and He's doing what He wants, and He can't explain it to you because you don't have the capacity. There's a good story that Martin Lloyd-Jones told about this. He was praying that God would give him an illustration to help with this text and the illustration that he was given was, think back to the time before the rabies treatment, vaccine, whatever they used to, to treat rabies, when a lot of people were dying from rabies. Think about a boy who has the dog that he loves and he's just a young boy, you know, five years old and He sleeps with the dog and he plays with the dog. The dog's his best friend. And he he comes out of the house one day and he sees his his dog there and his dad with his gun. And before he can say anything, his dad pulls the trigger and the dog dies. And he runs towards the dog and he says, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And dad, he tries to talk to him, but he just says, I hate you, I hate you. And he runs away. And that's what people are like with God. God is doing things for a reason, for a purpose that you don't understand. And you can not understand it. You're too immature. You're too finite. You're too small. But trust your father. Trust him. You're living in his house. He provides for you your food. He has sent his son to die for you. Trust him. You don't have to understand it all. You have to trust him. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And we look at God and we say, God, why not more? Why not this person? Why is that person not saved? I love this person. I would love to see this person get saved. And we can cry out and pray. And for all the living, there's hope. Just because someone has a hardened heart now doesn't mean that God's not going to soften their heart. And God wants us to pray for the salvation of the lost. But you know, if people die without Christ and and we wonder why why doesn't God save more people you think about heaven and hell an eternity of torment something you can't even imagine well if God has the power and if he can choose to save anybody he wants why doesn't he save more people we say God that's just not right that you have the power to save people and you're not saving them you feel the weight of the problem? Do you see why God says you just don't understand? I can't explain it to you, but you have to trust me. As we explore these verses here on Moses, Paul uses a scriptural argument, an argument from the authority of scripture. That's the best you're going to get. That's the best you're going to get. I'm not going to be able to explain it to you any better. You either believe the scripture or you don't. You either accept it and humble yourself or you don't. Now mercy is a key word here. You see, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And that is not just a key word in our text today, but it's a key word in chapters 9 through 11. The verb form to show mercy shows up seven times in these chapters and that's more than usual. This is a mercy section of scripture. And so when we think about mercy, one of my favorite writings on the subject comes from the pen of William Shakespeare. And William Shakespeare wrote about mercy and he wrote a whole play that really is designed to give one speech. It's called The Merchant of Venice. And in The Merchant of Venice, you have this rich merchant who has a bunch of merchant ships out on the sea And so he doesn't have any money. It's all tied up in his investments. But his friend wants to borrow money. And so he goes to a a Jewish moneylender. And we won't get into the politics of that. He goes to a Jewish moneylender in order to to get the loan to give to his friend. And he knows that he'll be able to pay it back because he's got all these different ships that are coming back from doing all the trade. And so he's not worried about it. But this Jewish moneylender has a particular grudge and hatred against this rich merchant, this Gentile. And instead of asking for any other form of collateral, he says, well, you know, just for fun, because I'm a generous guy, let's say if you don't pay back the loan, all you have to do is pay me back a pound of your flesh, closest to the heart. And the merchant of Venice, he, he knows that he's not going to default on the loan, and he says, well, sure, it's fine, I'll take those terms. So he signs the contract, a legally binding agreement, that if I don't pay back this money, then you have the right to a pound of my flesh that you can cut off closest to my heart, which will probably lead to death, right? Well, as Shakespeare would have it, tragedy hits, all of the ships are lost, he's not able to pay back the money, and the Jew takes him before the court and says, he's defaulted, I want my pound of flesh. And in Shakespeare's own amazing ways, he's got a woman who is in disguise as a man judging the case. And she looks at the case and she determines that, of course, the contract is legally binding and sound and that he has defaulted and therefore that Shylock has the right to claim the forfeiture of flesh. But then she says this, the Jew must be merciful. And the Jew says, well, Why? Must I be merciful? What legal constraint is there upon me that I have to show mercy to this man that I hate? And so then comes the speech on mercy. The quality of mercy is not strained. and When it says strained, it means it's not something that is forced. It's not something that anybody is putting any constraint upon you to do. Mercy is freely given from the heart. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle dew from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that giveth and him that takes. It is mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch, better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attributes of awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest God's when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I have spoke thus much to mitigate the justice of thy plea, which, if thou follow, this strict court of Venice must needs give sentence against the merchant there. Justice leads to the merchant's death mercy will lead to the merchant's life now as i said people don't understand the law they don't understand god they don't understand sin they don't understand the penalty of the law and therefore people don't understand god's justice and if they don't understand god's justice then they don't understand god's mercy i looked up mercy in miriam webster's dictionary and found they did not understand it not in a biblical sense and of course, Miriam Whipster does not define words, it just describes the way that people use words. And so people do not use the word mercy in the way the Bible uses the word mercy. Let me illustrate. The dictionary definition for mercy in our day, in our time, is a kind or forgiving treatment of someone who could be treated harshly. Now, that's not completely off base, right? I mean, we're asking Shylock to do kind treatment to someone that he could, could treat harshly, Right? But the word could there falls short of what is actually in the idea of mercy. Mercy is when you do not give someone the just penalty of their deeds. That's mercy. It's not just that you could do harm to someone. It's that if you did justice, if you did what someone deserved, it would be hard. Mercy is not something that is deserved. Deserved mercy is nonsense. The quote that they gave for the example of mercy being used in a sentence shows this. Here's their sentence. He is a vicious criminal who deserves no mercy. Deserving mercy is, is nonsense. Mercy, by definition, is something not deserved. So there's no such thing as deserved mercy. If we're talking about what's deserved, we're talking about justice. Justice. If we're talking about not getting the justice that you do, that's mercy. We've got to get our definitions from the scripture. God has the right to show mercy. It is not constrained. Nobody forces God to show mercy. Nobody has any claim upon God's mercy. If God chooses to be merciful, it's because he wants to be merciful, not because he has to. Anytime you think of God having to be merciful, you have misdefined mercy and you've misunderstood God. He doesn't have to be merciful. There's nothing in you that constrains him to be merciful. Turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. We're not going to get all the way through our text today as you have guessed, but I want to finish up here in Matthew chapter 20. A great story, a great parable that Jesus tells of the laborers in the vineyard. Start at the beginning of the chapter with me. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give to you. So they went, going out again the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? And they said, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last guys, they worked only for an hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. You know, we get so concerned about human rights. My rights, my rights, my rights. Anyone care about God's rights? Do you care about God's rights? Do you care that God has the authority to do what he wants with what belongs to him? Or do you think that everyone else gets to tell God what to do? God, I know it's your universe, but let me tell you what to do with it. God, I know you created all these people, but let me tell you how you're supposed to treat them. God says, this is my world. These are my people. I created all this can I not do what I want with what is mine? Don't you want people to treat you that way? Respect your rights? Respect your property? You know, people coming over and telling you what to do with your house and your investments, taking charge of your life? Well, don't do that to God. Don't go to Him and say, God, you've got to do this or it's not right. You know what's right better than God? Just stop and think about the arrogance that makes us say something like that to God. Well, that's one half of the argument, and we we'll get to the next half. Paul triples down on this. So he was doubling down on it in verses 15 and 16, but then, if you thought this was hard, we haven't even gotten to verses 17 and 18 yet, Paul's going to triple down on God's rights. God has the right to show mercy. If he wants to give, he can give. If he wants to save you, he can save you. And that doesn't put him under obligation to anyone else. But he's also got the right to judge. And if God wants to judge you, if he wants to send you to hell, he has the right to do that. He has the authority to do that. We'll look at that next week. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, the Bible is unique among books in so many ways. But one of the ways that your word is unique, God, is is how it humbles mankind. It puts us in our place. Instead of being on the throne, we are before the throne and you are on the throne throughout the Holy Bible. And Lord, though this is sometimes hard for us to bear, it is good and we recognize the goodness in it because you have opened our eyes. You have given us the ability to see Him who is the truth, Him who is the way, Him who is the life. And we are in Him who is true. We give you thanks for it. Amen.